0: Good evening, I'm Anne Flaherty and I'm delighted to be able to welcome you to the Irish Cultural Centre's Digital Literary Festival. The centre is based in Hammersmith, London and for the past 25 years has delivered to its patrons the most diverse Irish cultural and educational programme outside Ireland. The festival comprises a series of interviews featuring some of the most successful authors in contemporary Irish writing. They will be discussing and some of them will also be reading from their recent publications. My interview this evening is with the award-winning novelist, playwright, poet Dermot Bulger and we'll be discussing his new collection of short stories, Secrets Never Told, which is published this month. Dermot, you're very very welcome to our festival and delighted that you're able to talk to us. Now in saying that it's a new book or a new collection, in actual fact it, they're not new stories, isn't that right, Dermot? Some of them have been, most of them, in fact, have been broadcast or published in anthologies or you know, even appeared in plays down through the years. What was it that made you uh, bring them all together in their original uh, length?
1: I haven't been, I'm going to hold up the real, the real cover now because that was the proof copy. So, so we actually, we, blood, blood was spilled, i we got a new cover, a lovely cover. Uh, the, the, the odd thing with, sh- some of these short stories go back, um... Twenty years, most of were more recent, and the thing is that Samuel, um, sorry, but Samuel Johnson said that the only only people, the only reason to write is anybody who wrote without getting paid was a blockhead, which was a bit a bit, a bit extreme. But uh, Samuel Khan, the American songwriter, was once asked what came first, the music or the lyrics, and he said the phone call. And so many of these were stories that were in my head. Many of these were based on events or little sort of things that make a fascinating story. But in some ways, you writers. Uh, and we're lazy and so you need someone to make the phone call so enough of these wound up being a phone call from a, a producer in BBC Radio 4 and it's say like, we have a short story or from the Irish Times or whatever and, and they're great because that gives you the impetus to write I mean writers are like school children doing their homework on a Sunday night late thing you know? so you need that sort of deadline you need that sort of uh, request but then you are you know, because it's a commission you are quite restricted on what you can do. So normally I'd wind up writing a story and the story would take legs and it would be like four and a half thousand words in the first draft, but it wouldn't be finished. But then I'd need to begin to cut and cull and kill off characters, a bit like the final act of a Shakespearean play and and get rid of a lot of people and get something that was uh, 2,100 words for the BBC or maybe two and a half thousand words for a magazine or whatever. And um, so the stories were written, but are never written to my satisfaction. And then in these long months of lockdown of this year uh, and having written all the novels I wanted to write for the meantime, I said, let's go back to the short stories. I always felt it was a book there, but this time I will write them purely for myself. And this time I will allow the characters in them to live and breed and tell me their secrets and speak at length. And so some of the stories that were 2,000 words uh, when broadcast on BBC Radio 4 wound up being like 9,000 words and 7,500 words and the characters began doing things and they were liberated. They were sort of let loose uh, and so these aren't novels but some of them are almost n- novella size and it was fascinating to, It was lovely to write purely for myself and so this book is like my little gift to myself. Uh, that doesn't presume that, 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 presumes that nobody else will ever read it but my little gift to myself and a few other people who might read it. You know?
0: Mm-hmm. and um the, the title i suppose is in uh, the secret is in the title you know the theme is in the title the secrets never told because they are all loosely about people who discover uh a secret that uh, has maybe made them realize that uh, their world uh, uh, as they understood it now no longer makes sense mm-hmm. and i was just thinking there about short stories um when we were at school and uh, and I'm sure you read the same writers the Sean of Whelan and Mary Lavin and Frank O'Connor when you were studying at school we were always told that a short story was a a condensed form a sort of a slice of life in which there's a a truth is uncovered or there's an epiphany after which life will never be the same Mm -hmm. would you agree with that definition? Well I never read that I was actually in the the classroom
1: when when the teacher was reading out that bit, but I I think short stories do hinge on certain moments and, and they allow you, it's sort of, as a, all, you know, a novelist sees the whole world as somehow their terrain. And I remember like walking my dog in Druncondra some years ago, and there was a skip on the side of the, outside the house. And normally skips are full of rubble, but this skip was full of paper and it was all the um, stuff that had been left in the attic, of this house and I, I, mean, I did what any respectable writer would do, I, I tied my dog to the skip at two o'clock in the morning, climbed in and read all the papers and there were valentine cards from 1950s and love letters from a young girl in the 1950s else. and I sort of knew that this was a play and she was going to be 15 in the play and she was going to die of TB and it was going called April Brighton. I wrote a short poem in the skip, it was quite cold so it was a very short poem and uh, but I sort of felt that story is play. I want it to be one day in, in, in the life of this girl and I want it to be where, where something else becomes a novel. And so certain things, uh, these stories allowed me to hone in on certain uh teams i wanted to explore certain notions of people understanding their lives and then not understanding their lives without having to build the whole uh apparatus of a novel without having to tell the entire story and so i just found that 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 these particular sl- sl- Ideas when they came to me. These characters belong to a short story, as against a novel, as against a play, as against the, as against a poem. And so, really, um, I don't have any theoretical approach to these things. They are just certain characters suit certain forms, and these seem to work in short stories for me.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, was... uh,
1: we, we, we did I... read the same. Did you read Exploring English? Uh, by gus martin uh which, i which don't was, think i
0: can uh, reveal that now because i might be uh, i might be giving too much information about
1: my age, oh, age. <laughs> <laughs> well you you could have simply read the reprint because it was, it was people feel so such, such that, that that they actually relaunched it as, as as a gift before christmas and i wrote induction and i remember being uh 12 years of age and i was going into secondary school and i got a job as a a van by uh, you, you realise I'm going to w- wander around strange thoughts to this interview but I got a job as an underage van boy for Pangrove Ice Cream and I got my brother's copy of Exploring English and there were two sets of, of names and on the cover there was Led Zeppelin and there was The Who all these bands he was listening to and then inside there, there was Mary Lavin and Frank O'Connor and sort of Ben McLaverty and, and Brian Free and all these mm-hmm. other names that opened up the other worlds to me and so the, the short story had a particular magic because it was the first they were the first adults things I read
0: yes was there any particular story uh, that you would remember there Dermot as um, uh, as being you know very um, influential shall we say or something that really really well, Guest of the Nation is,
1: is, is, is a magnificent story, and the, uh, the, the, the last paragraph for Guest of the Nation is so powerful, and just the message of Guest of the Nation is so powerful. The Frank O'Connor story, which, which, which is, I think, a story that every school child should actually read. Uh, and obviously, the confirmation soup by Ben and Bean was also very funny, and mm-hmm. I don't think that's funny. And for some ways, the album, there's a Mary Lavin one called, I think, The Tale of the Widow's Son, and what was interesting about it was that it had two endings. It had sort of, it, it, she, was, she was She was a widow and she was walking really hard to get her son through college and the son cycling home and there's one of the hens runs across the road and the son actually uh, skids to avoid the hen and actually is killed and everybody comes in the neighbours. And then there's another version of the story where the son runs over the hen and the mother goes to Memphis says, I've been starving all my life and you've no interest in the way I try to feed you. And the son... Is so upset and that that he leaves home, and so I actually I, I love this even though not not her best story. I, I it was very interesting in opening the possibilities that the story doesn't necessarily have one ending, and then the story doesn't necessarily have one ending. It doesn't have one beginning either, and so it's just just, just in terms of actually somebody playing with the form was interesting in terms of just uh, just just igniting the window of possibility in my mind.
0: Hmm. And, um, you know, the way that the Irish, the Irish writers are always celebrated for, um, for being great short story writers. And I wondered how much of that do you think is due to the fact that we place a very high regard on someone who can tell a good story? You know, we've a, a long tradition of, the, of oral storytelling.
1: I think we do place a high value on people who who can tell a story. And I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember um back on like like um, Mervyn Wall and Sydney Ben Smith. I remember the, 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 when the Tyrone Guthrie Centre opened in and forced these on men were up there and they'd be avoiding each other so they could save their best story for dinner. And it was quite a competition to tell who would tell the best story. These, these were men who told stories all their lives. And I think the Irish love to tell stories. And uh, we find people who don't tell stories really, really. Strange, but I do think Ireland's relationship with the short story. It, it, people say well, it's like the Russian, the inner, inner Russian coming out. I think it a lot of it has to do with poverty. A lot of it has to do with the fact that Ireland didn't have um indigenous publishing houses or had very few indigenous publishing houses. If you go back into the 40s, into the 50s, you 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 have the Bell magazine, you, you have Domin Press starting up, then you have the 70s and you actually have Gallery starting and you have Neil Jordan and Des Hogan starting the Risers Cooperative and myself starting um Raven Arts Press and, and loads of other people coming in and suddenly like we took control of our own fiction. And, uh, yeah, and also a lot of it was published abroad. But with censorship so Um, Fierce in Ireland uh, I think that the short story was one that writers could slip into without having been banned in the way that novels were banned and so I think when I was growing up there was always a thing that the short story was Ireland's national art form and and I said hang on there's also like James Joyce wrote Ulysses and *Finnegans Wake*, and Beckett wrote that great trilogy of novels and so thing So, but though there was this sense that um the, the short story was a safer form in a conservative society. So, and it's, it's interesting the number of um great Irish novels that begin as short stories and then and then they expand out from Lancashire, go down which began as a short story and 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 others. So, I, I think that short stories suited. Uh, the Irish temperament, but also suited the economic circumstances that you could have a short story published in the Bell magazine and that they understood, because it was published in Ireland, they understood the society. Whereas if you wanted a novel published, you were going to England, you were going to New York, and very often you were dealing with people who didn't, with editors, uh, and publishers who didn't understand the society that the story had been written in, and who had preconceptions of that society, and if your story didn't fit into certain themes, it wasn't an Irish novel. So I, I think this, this, this your story was a very good stepping stone, and that doesn't that is not to denigrate it, because obviously uh, people like um To and Anne Enright and so many others have you know have done. Very successful with novels, and then come back into the short story because it has unique um things about it that, that that make it very very special
0: and you yourself have written across all the genres all the platforms you you've written plays you've written novels, you've written poetry. Is there any particular uh, uh, genre that you that you find um easiest or more uh, that you feel most at home in shall we say
1: it's the odd thing that you when you begin with poetry. Uh, it's still the one, like the poetry is like the 100 meter sprint in the Olympics. And so it's, 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 it's a blue ribbon event. And the novel is like, it's like the marathon. Uh, and uh, so there's a sense of achievement in finishing a novel. I remember, like, lots of people want to write novels and just never get to the end. I remember getting a phone call from a friend and she was in a cottage in County Clare. And she said, I just can't finish this novel. I cannot finish this novel, you know. And, and, and I said two things. I said, firstly... Everybody who rides the Tour de France and gets through it, because every day, if you're an hour late, you're expelled from the Tour de France. If you fall and can't get up, you're expelled from the Tour de France. So just to get to the Champs-Élysées on the last day You have won the Tour de France just by finishing the Tour de France. And if you finish your novel, you will have won the Tour de France. You will have ridden the Tour de France and succeeded and got to the end. So you must do it for yourself that you have done this achievement. And secondly, uh, you just got paid a million dollars by uh, Penguin in America and you don't want to give the million dollars back. And it was Nuala O'Fallon trying to finish her first novel. And and even someone like that who had um, success behind her still had that same nerves that everybody else has facing a novel and when you face a novel my last novel an Ark of life took me 13 years to write and the one before that took around 11 years now that doesn't mean i was at it consistently it means that that i threw that wall and abandoned it and forgot about it for long periods because you you literally like a mountain runner you're running into the wall and you find a way to push through the wall so uh the, the novels are that there's a sense of achievement in finishing a novel because it's such a long slog. Uh, there's a sense of purity in finishing a poem because poems, they they often, they, you novels are ground out on cold Tuesday afternoons where you sort of go into a room and out of routine, you begin to slowly begin to walk. So you're writing a novel, Was the poems write you. You're walking in the park, you're walking in your dog dark at night and a sudden thought sparks with electricity. And you just know that's the opening line of a poem. And unless you write it down immediately, it would be gone. And so the poems are always a benediction and a surprise. And so there's always a specialist around them. And the plays are in between. But Castle was once asked, when was the painting finished? And he said, when the... Gentleman from the gallery comes to hang it, and the play is only really finished when the gentlemen and ladies from the press come to hang the playwright. And so it's perpetually changing, and you're also um, uh, dealing with sort of actors who might want to change lines or might know their lines, or you're dealing with all these sort of things. And there is a great immediacy to it. It's hard in this sense of lockdown to know that last year, this time last year, I had a play on the Theatre and it was sold out and it was like there were 440 people in every night and many from Dockland communities who hadn't been in the theatre very often and sometimes they were there drinking till two o'clock in the morning and, and it, it's, it, it's funny how the world has changed that you just can't imagine 440 people in a theatre but there is that sense of um, with uh, a play you if you go in you actually meet the audience right? you can overhear the audience talking at the interval and you get a sense of immediacy with a novel because they are big events you might get reviews within a week or two and get a sense of a reaction with poems it's like dropping a stone down a well and you've no idea if you will ever hear the splash.
0: I was just thinking there when you mentioned about poetry um, that uh, while, while there's the, the sort of the group um, dynamic involved in people coming uh, to, to a play. There's also, I suppose, the, the shared experience of poetry at a time you mentioned there, the lockdown. And I was thinking of how during the lockdown in Ireland, poetry became very important. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in particular of, of how President Michael G. Higgins' poem, uh, Take Care, became a very symbolic for people. Um, so I was just thinking there about poetry being u- both very personal and also kind of universal, you know, the shared experience.
1: That is other thing. I mean, it, it, Nadeshda Manastan, Asap Manastan's wife, uh, in one of her books and memoirs, said that like, a, a, a poet could spend 60 years of his or her life writing poems every day and sort of producing volume after volume and if they were lucky they'd be remembered for one poem or one stanza or one line of one poem and, and that's how poetry gets condensed down but but, but but those poems that do strike a chord uh, do live on and so if I'm remembered for anything I know not it ever will be I expect it will be for some poem and probably for a poem that I don't even rate very highly, but uh, because I think poems do, they go on very, very strange journeys. And um, so I find as somebody who has um, started to look the free travel pass in in, in the face as we speak, uh, uh, and looking back over 45 years of writing, uh, what surprises me is a number of people who remember certain poems by me uh, and how uh, those poems have meant something to them. Uh, and that has been, I mean, somebody wrote to me, and, and there's a certain poem of mine they put up on the mantelpiece every Christmas Eve. I was amazed it was in one of the newspapers they could have from a newspaper. Probably the nicest thing that ever happened to me was um, when the Ballymun flats were torn down, the high rise terrace in Dublin. Uh, somebody who was a, a documentary maker sent me a photograph, and they had, they were up on a crane, and on like the seventh or eighth story of um, the, a tower block, with three walls were knocked down and there was one wall left and there was a mock fireplace had been put in because there weren't proper fireplaces there. And above the fireplace, somebody had left a poem of mine called Ballymone Incantation uh, and it was surrounded by pictures of their children. And when they left the flat, this was the last thing they did and they, and they left it there and it was just this one wall standing there. So poems affect people in ways that you can't, um, uh, you don't know who, who would be affected by poems. So, did, And I think in lockdown, I think, in, I think because with It's so hard. Thankfully, I'm not in the middle of a novel, because if you're writing a contemporary novel, the world has changed so much that it's very hard to finish that novel. It's very hard to know what life is going to be like in in six months and 18 months and two and a half years time. I I had this with a novel of mine called um, Tanglewood some years ago, which was was set at a height of the Celtic tiger and was written at a height of the Celtic tiger. Initially, about two uh, neighbours building a house, a shared house in the back garden to sell. And, but then, of course, the property market collapsed and I realised that the world I was writing about had disappeared and it took me 10, 11 years to finish that book. And then I realised that uh, I could, I didn't need to explain the whole collapse of the Celtic If you were a novelist and if you wrote a novel set in the summer of 1913 and it was a long, glorious summer, you didn't need to tell the reader what was going to happen next because the reader knew what was going to happen next. But I almost had to wait until The Celtic Tiger became part of history before I could go back and finish that novel. And so I think that people in the middle of writing novels at the moment must be stuck in a terrible quandary if their novels are in the present world because the present world doesn't make sense. Whereas poetry has a freedom, it deals with emotions and immediacy and you can write a poem now that will hopefully reflect this time but will still be valid in 20, 30, 40 years' time.
0: I was wondering, Dermot, if you'd mind actually reading one of your poems and tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, uh, just like like all poets, I just happen to have a copy of a book beside me. Uh, it, it's uh, by Sher Fluke. And uh, this poem is called uh, Temple Street Children's Hospital. And uh, as a child, I had a very bad stammer and I was uh, singly unable to say 66 sneaky silvery snakes. And the stammer is, it's like a prophecy in reverse because it tells you what's going to happen 10 minutes after it has already happened and uh as a child, I was quite bullied and called a dunce and quite you know, there was not, no great understanding of what a stammer was uh and or, or why someone would have a stammer. and so my mother brought me to see a speech therapist in temper street children 's hospital and poems happen it was my mother died uh, when I was quite young, and so one of my my last memories of one of the last memories is of being with her and walking in, into this small hospital and um I was walking past the hospital one day some years ago and the mother and child were coming out and immediately I had that sort of flashback uh, to that moment. And so it's it's a very simple poem uh, called Temple Street Children's Hospital from my mother. This is your territory. I brought you here. Shoddy tenement windows were washing flaps, crumbling lanes where cars get broken for parts. There is an archway beneath which we passed, like the one above which you shared a flat, which your sisters up from Monaghan for a walk in a war became Dublin. Surely you must once have gazed up, puzzled by how the years since had landed you here with a son, a stuttering misfit, unable to pronounce the most simple of words, a bright penny whose cloud you'd never see lift as you fretted, unaware of how close death hovered. The speech therapist's office had fancy ties and books and a special mirror which allowed me to be watched. The waiting room contained a white, merciless clock which ticked off the final hours we spent alone, gazing down at a garden where I yearned to walk, trapped indoors by the shame of my garbled tongue. I stand outside a hospital in Nernie's Court, at Kelly's Row, where a blacksmith once walked. And no logic can explain why you feel this close, why I see us in the mother and child who pass, or how, as I age, I slowly become your son, gazing through your eyes with incomprehension. I was too young to have known you, so it makes no sense that every passing year only deepens your absence. Uh, last year was the 50th anniversary of the start of speech therapy training in Ireland and I, re- I read this poem at a conference of a speech therapists of a certain age and when I came to the line uh, and a special mirror which allowed me to be watched the whole room collapsed in hysterical giggles because they all remember this particular room and <laughs> this time It did it so it's, it's strange how you can read a poem uh, uh, 200 times and on the 200th <laughs> time you get a different reaction.
0: Well, it's a beautiful poem, Dermot. Thank you very much for reading it. Um, You mentioned there about losing your mother when you were young, and and I believe your father was away a lot. He was away at sea, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you'd uh, talk a little bit about your childhood growing up and uh, and how you actually started off becoming a writer.
1: Well, everybody only has one childhood, so every childhood is normal to them. Mm -hmm. Um, My my mother died when I was ten years of age, just before Christmas. Um, Again children didn't know about these things. You weren't told that I was in the hospital. I didn't know that she was ill. And suddenly it was a, it was a quite a shock to me. My father was a sailor and he was at sea most of the time. Uh, I had three Siblings. Uh, my eldest uh, was June Constantine, who is uh, a very, very fine, accomplished novelist under her own name. And more recent years as Laura Elliott, where she sells books all over the world, e mm-hmm. and does really, really well. And, and June, June actually left school when she was uh, around 15. As, as girls, her age and boys her age of what last did at that time and had dreams of blank sheets of paper uh, and didn't do anything well until she was, in you know, her 30s. Uh, I'll come to that in a moment. But um, I used to walk to school with a guy called David. David was going to be a soldier and shoot people. As you got going to join the Irish Army, I'm not sure who he was going to shoot because uh, the Irish Army uh, had been primarily involved in peacekeeping for for all, all of its existence. But one day I had a teacher called Michael Donnelly um, in primary school and one day he read a poem um, Horning Lung of or the poem by, by Monsignor Patrick de Bruyn, um, which was, um, a, a, and it was like the classroom was in black and white, and this poem was in color. And it was a new way of seeing the world. And I was mesmerized and fascinated. And when I walked home, I decided that um, I was going to be a poet as well and told it to David, and David said, you can't be a poet. let to be a poet, you have to go to university. We didn't know anybody who'd been to university. Now, the chemist's son around the corner wound up being knighted by the Queen of England for his work in sort of um, medical science. And the girl I used, to, I used to play with became a doctor. And so loads of people, you, you could go on, but at that time, we, we were the first generation to have free second level education. Like I was the second person in my family to to, to do the leave insert, uh, And so there was that sense of, uh, we didn't understand the horizons that were there. But as I say, I left school early uh, and got a job as an underage van by Pangrove. And that's somewhere I began to write down words, but I didn't know what they were. It was just a journey for me uh, into words. I was fascinated by words. And I went to secondary school um, and teachers are so important. There's a, a teacher called Colin call Hewitt, and he came in, and he had a, a black bag with him, like a doctor's bag. And he had two things in the bag. He took out a leather strap. It was his first day as a teacher. He took out a leather strap, and he said, they gave me this to beaches us up with on the way, and someone please put it in the bin? <laughs> and he took, out, he took out a book called The Hobbit. Said, this is about a small furry creature called The Hobbit who lives in a hole in the ground. And we all said, sir, 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 sir. And he said what he said like we're all hard from fingers.' could we have something else not, not some creature living the hole in the ground and he said shut up and listen and we all shut up we all listened we all fell in love with bilba baggins within two weeks we all wanted to have bilba baggins as baby and i trusted this guy and i showed him these poems but uh, and he said these are great poems but i said i can't be a poet because to be a poet you have to go to university and he said all you need is a pen and paper and the freedom of your imagination. And so I began to write poems. But I had no notion that um, a small mobile library came to fingers and all the poetry books uh, were from the 19th century or with a Celtic tiger, uh, Celtic twilight. They all had like right. uh, long, long hair and big mm-hmm. bicky bows. I mean, like the, the normal uh, standard dress was skinhead and fingers. So I thought I'd never be a poet. I'd never get being able to get the fashion accessories for a start. And I wrote poems about the Celtic t- t- uh, twilight. I went to Wicklow and looked at, cow- looked at cows and fields and fairy forts. And my sister June saw that there was a, a writer's workshop in the People's College. The People's College was set up uh, by the trade unions for adult education after the war. John Charles McRae, the Archbishop of Dublin, was suspicious of it. Anything John Charles McQuaid was suspicious of was a good thing. So we went to it and uh, June began to write. We had two uh, lecturers, and they were they weren't lecturers. They just talked to us. One was Sean McCann, who was the father of Colin McCann, who was uh, who was great just in this the joys of ordinary journalism and i'm a mm-hmm. journalist as well and i take great pride in my journalism mm-hmm. and then the other was anthony Cronin, that great poet who didn't look like a poet at all uh, and he wise me up and he said like these poems are very very good but why are they about all these old-fashioned archaic subjects and i said well mm-hmm. that's what poetry is about and he said everything within the ambit of human experience is within the ambit of the poet go and write about what you know and so i began to write uh, but also i found that at the time very little of my world was reflected in irish poetry and um there are two types of poets there are practical and impractical poets now if you can be an impractical poet it is really useful because people will make you tea open doors for you give you meals everything else if you're a practical poet you, you you have to go and do things tony didn't explain this to me so i became a practical poet at the age of 18 there was a guy um a few streets away who printed football pools coupons in his shed in his back garden and i got him to begin to print Poetry books and Ravenous Press was born, and suddenly, as against just publishing my own work, I was publishing uh, a new generation of poets like uh, Matthew mm-hmm. Sweeney and Michael Lachlan and Philip Casey and Sarah Berkeley and Richard Boland and uh, mm-hmm. people like Paul Duncan who had no publishers and Michael Hartnett and uh, and and all kinds of writers and, and suddenly first translations of Newland and into into English and all these things and it was just journey that it was just part and parcel of the whole thing. Yeats had a thing and. I'm not I'm comparing myself to Yeats because there is you couldn't do that. But but he had this thing that uh, you had to only to um, not only create a literature but create an audience. And so Ray of Arts Press and things like the Irish Arts Cooperative and all the things that were happening in music at that time in the late '70s in Ireland with sort of uh, the Boomtown mats and the Radios from Space and sort of U2 and all those bands. It was about creating an audience. It was that I think it was that first generation to get free second level education. Uh, and and many meant them were nice middle-class lads like you two who would have got education anyway, but there was, suddenly there was an audience and there were people like Fitnatur and everything else who were suddenly asking questions and it was a really interesting time and lots of interesting magazines and things came out of it and it was a really fascinating time to become a writer, but at the time we really felt we needed to also also take control of the means of production and that's what Raven Arts was, it was a a, a press famous for its dissidents and its misprints.
0: Well, you were very young, actually, when you when you started off the Raven Arts Press. I mean, you were only, what, 18 or 19, am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, I mean, that was. It must have been very exciting. But also, I mean, how did you suddenly plunge into being a publisher? Where did you get the money from? Uh, how, how did it kind of all pan out? It all panned out in, by, by,
1: by, by accident, which is the way that you discover m- most things between, from penicillin to sex. It's sort, of, it's sort of, we didn't really know what we were doing. And that was also in the, you know, people bands were satin up who couldn't play play instruments. So it wasn't that difficult that uh, poets began, who knew about publishing, began began to publish. I remember I was laying out our first book um, in uh, a flat in Dolphin's Barn, and um, skinheads thought that we were drug dealers and were trying to kick down the front door. And the the, the only drug we had was was cowgum for, for actually pasting the pages down. And it was, we went to uh, in 1979. The Pope came to Ireland and it was he was a great patron of the arts because every Marxist and Maoist student in in Trinity College in UCD became a capitalist overnight because we we're hundreds selling Pope posters and every house in Ireland had a picture of Pope and every student was selling Pope posters. And we, we laid out that book in Dolphin's band, and we came to a back street printer in that mines. And he took a look at it and he says, not another, not another bloody Pope poster. And we said, no, it's a book of poems. And he says, okay, I'll print it for free. And we looked around really? and there were thousands of Popes all drying on the walls. He printed for free. We actually bought it on the, wheel, on the wheels of our bicycles, a another flat. We, we collated the pages by hand. We bought it to a bookbinder who did it for national and nothing. And without knowing anything, we began to sell it around pubs and in bookshops. And really without, we just felt that there was a need for voices to be heard. And we didn't go into, it, it, it was never business. It, it was a loose room for change. And then uh, after ten or twelve years Irish writing had moved on and uh, I, 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 I stopped Raven As Press and I co-founded um, New Island Books and the idea with New Island Books was that I'd be involved in founding and, and then I, I would just retreat further and further into the background because when I was um, published by Penguin and people in England for the first time I found it quite interesting how you had the an editor and an editor had great control and great authority and was like a god figure and then after around four years he or she will go back to his desk at um 10 to 5 on a Friday evening and they'd find a severance check and all their belongings in a plastic bag and they'd be kicked out and, like football managers and they'd bring somebody else in and that's how big publishers in England renewed themselves by having new people coming in the whole time and i realized i didn't want to be in control of the same publishing house that i founded 50 years ago uh, when i 50 years ago and so it was i think that was Important to relinquish control, but keep the ethos of being a press for writers. And since then, like New Ireland has gone from strength to strength, and like every three or four years, a new editor comes in with new ideas and new writers. And I think that even it news itself. And I think that's very important. So I was, but I, I stay in the background. I'm, I'm. Um, I think I might be called editor emeritus or something. But I, actually, I, I'm basically I'm like Tom Hagen in the. Our father, they, they, they. I'm the conciliary. They phone me up when somebody needs to be shot. Hmm.
0: I, I was interested actually in the whole idea that uh, you know that you were a publisher and a writer because I wondered how you would compartmentalize the two. Do you know? But hmm. uh, I see uh, what you're saying is that you've moved back now into that editor at large role. But well, right, I wonder. When Johnny
1: said... home was published by. Sorry to go. When Johnny home was published by Penguin and took off and became a very controversial book and everything else, I just it just became impossible. The balance became became impossible to to control. So early on, it wasn't that difficult. Uh, but in 1988, the Journey Home was published. Or 89, and then 88, uh, Ravenas published the Godscropper Paddy Doyle, a really really important book. It was a first book about childhood uh, yes. abuse and institutions, and it changed Ireland. Uh, yeah. And suddenly, it, I realised that no, these these are as soon as I also got married, and I and you know wanted a life of my own, and yeah. it just became I. I realised that I couldn't be all things to all mm-hmm. people, you know. So, 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 so that was the point when, when I moved apart, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and in terms of the, the sort of books that come that come into your um, publishing company today, um, do you at any stage get involved? Does somebody come to you, one of the editors come to you and say, I think I've got a cracker here? Or, you know, What do you, do you read any of the submissions that come in? If somebody says, i got something really good by somebody really, really young and new and unheard of,
1: I'm like a grandfather Mm -hmm. and grandfathers and grandmothers learn not to give advice. So basically, uh, I'm at the end of the phone. If something arises, if something, uh, if it's particularly things, things but libel and things as well are, are, are very you know you, you really get a, a sense of it or if people are uncertain so if somebody seeks my advice I'll give my advice but I'm not involved in day-to-day um, decisions in the company I'm not involved in accepting or rejecting anybody mm-hmm. it's, but, 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 but if, if somebody if somebody is unsure about something and wants my, my advice I will give my advice but that but, but that advice might be acted upon.
0: Mm. And what do you think yourself makes a good book? Um, if you listen to, if you even talk to people about books and, in the way that people do, some people uh, find the plot more important, other people find, you know, they get engaged to the characters that they don't like the characters or whatever. I mean, do, do you, what, what do you think makes um, a, a good read?
1: I think a good book is a book that has an engine of curiosity inside it. And I think that's very important early on in the book. Uh, and when I, if I don't teach creative writing, I don't believe I don't know how you could, but I, I, I mean, occasionally I, I would talk to people, uh, you know, young writers and i else. And and I say that, that the opening of a of a short story, the opening of, of a novel, is almost when you're walking your dog at night and you're walking down a, a quiet road and all the curtains are pulled except for one house and you look in the window and you, we're natural voyeurs and we begin to okay. speculate on who actually lives in that house based on what we can see in the window whether it has wallpaper or whether it has paintings but has paintings big television whether it has bookcases all those sort of things you begin to form a thing and opening page of a novel or short is like that we have to begin to speculate we have to we don't necessarily have to like the people but we have to be curious about it we have to have sufficient curiosity to turn the page and uh i think that sort of a good book is is something that engages us uh, and they often don't have big plots i mean the god squad was the biggest selling book that raven published the biggest selling book that new island published ever was probably um I used Somebody by Nuala O'Fallon. Mm. I remember uh, being involved with um, Edwin Hegel in the decision as to whether to print 2,000 or 2,500 copies. We really weren't sure. And then she was on The Late Late Show and she was just did this brilliant interview and I just phoned Edwin at 2 o'clock in the morning and I said, reprint, reprint, <laughs> reprint, even though I wasn't involved. But you just knew that mm. Nula had touched a chord with so many people. And there was nothing in, in, in reading the manuscript to say there's nothing here that is... Remarkable. I mean, her, her life was remarkable. She was a remarkable person. But there was nothing here that you, you think this book is going to wind up being number two in the New York Times bestsellers. But she was just honest about herself, honest about her life, honest about the onset of middle age, honest about loneliness, honest about sexual frustration at times, honest about the, just the ordinary, the foul rag bone shop of the heart, as Yates would say. And people all over the world picked up that book and felt that, they recognised themselves in the book and the book took off and so on in various languages. And that's something that you can't teach. That's something that you can't. That was her lived life was sort of there. And and, and so as a publisher, it's very difficult because many books I've seen come in and I said, this book is going to take off. It has a brilliant plot. It has this, that, and the other. But it's that human connection. Uh, And I think the human connection is what... And I, I always also think books can also be marketed in certain ways and um, books can have a second life i mean there's a book called um love in black and white i don't know have you ever, ever heard of it it came out it didn't do well you'd have found it in remainder bookshops for 50 uh 50 cent or 50 pence for a long time and after a few years the publishers said that is about a photographer who photographs Bridges and, that's, and he falls in love. And that's why he's called Love in Black and White. And I said, maybe the title song, Maybe we should call it The Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> and suddenly this book takes off again by in book clubs and word of mouth. And so books can have curious journeys. And yes. sometimes they... Yes. But I think that one of the great tragedies nowadays when Ravenance began... We were a really small press. The books were quite badly produced, but they got reviewed, they got 10, 12 reviews, and they were there in in the bookshops for six months. Nowadays, if a book hasn't taken off in two or three weeks, it's already be its way down the back of the bookshop. And soon it's gone back to the publisher within three months. And those books have less time to make for wood melt to become cult books. And I think that that's a pity. That, in some ways it's great that so many books have been published, but I think that uh, the whole book selling world has, has become such a strange world that unless a book is sort of marketed a certain way, it, 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 yeah. it, those random things uh, are harder to actually happen. But the books that have been great successes have been books that um, when I read them initially, I, I didn't think they were going to do any particular great business. Um
0: mm. Yes, that's true. Their business has changed. Of course, marketing you know, is a big part of it. And even for a writer, marketing yourself and having to, you know, uh, do the circuit. There's no circuit at the moment, but that's much more a part of it now, isn't it? Uh, I think I read somewhere that there were 600 books published on one day there a couple of weeks ago. 600 books in one day were published. So they can't one, always be... Beat... Pardon? 601?
1: 601 actually. <laughs> I
0: think you beat them to it. <laughs> I was just thinking there about some of the writers that you have published who've actually moved away from Ireland. Now, you have stayed in Ireland. You've written about your own community. You've written about uh, the Anglo-Irish community. You've written about all sorts of, of uh, layers and of Irish society. But uh, some Irish writers... Um, prefer or feel that they have to move away and it gives them a different perspective or it gives them an international perspective whatever uh we could we could think there of course of james joyce himself hmm. um but um uh i just wondered uh, how uh, how has it been different for you do you think and how is it, it well, actually staying at home and i think this society
1: of becoming a practical poet at the age of 18, which was, Mm. which was a terrible decision on my life because basically I was the, I was the boy left manning the shop while everybody else went abroad. I was probably the only member of my generation not to live outside Ireland for long periods. And they all had, well often had great adventures in various places. And and I was at home publishing the books and sort of uh, dealing with, with dodgy bookbinders and sort of, uh, and those things. It's, I think that people like Joyce had to go abroad uh, and Beckett had to go abroad to to find the space. And and I think that sort of with my generation, it it was a case of actually I want to explore this country, understand this country. And it just didn't suit me to go abroad. It wasn't. I I, I lead a very, very non-literary life. Um, I mean, it would be nice to have gone abroad, but uh, I wouldn't be able to play football every Friday night with my mates from Fingers if I actually had. I wouldn't be able. Do all these things I did, and Dublin is a—it's a good city in the sense that it has a number of theatres very, very close together. I'm ten minutes from the Abbey Theatre, I'm ten minutes from the Gate Theatre, I'm ten minutes from the Project Art Centre, uh, I'm ten minutes from the Wilderness of B- Bull Island, and and, and until uh, planes stopped flying a few months ago, I was like an hour from London and everything else. And I actually really felt that uh, I wanted to explore that sort of world, but then I never felt constricted by that. And so uh, novels like um, The Family Empowered* Paradise, peer and Arc of Life, these are two novels about the goul family. And they're also set in uh, Moscow in the 1930s. Uh, they're, they're, they're set in Gulags, are set in Spain during Spanish Civil War, in London during the 1926 uh, general strike. And I, I, I think that uh, my my, one of my favourite of my more recent novels is a novel called uh, The Lonely Sea and Sky, about my father's voyages to Lisbon. And I I spent like six months with um, two maps of sitting here in this room. Uh, my my son, my son is six foot seven, so he's a very large bicycle he wasn't using. And, I, and on one bicycle, there was a map of Lisbon in 1940. And over here, there was a map of Lisbon now. So I knew Lisbon now, and I was trying to, walk out the bits and just you spend a lot of time traveling in your imagination so um i think certain writers do need to go to the places they're writing about uh and certain writers uh just sit at home and write so i i feel i have traveled an awful lot in my imagination it's just i i haven't actually traveled an awful lot um i haven't felt the necessity to go abroad uh to find a mental space to write
0: but do you find or do you feel that it's important for uh, uh, an Irish writer to reflect back the society that uh, lives in, that, that they live in? I, th- I, th- I think it's important. What, mean, part, what uh, I mean part. is that you were one of the first people to write about the working class uh, community of North Dublin. Mm -hmm. for example but then you also wrote about an Anglo-Irish family growing up in Donegal who went you know uh, who took on communism and went off and um, had tragic you know endings so were you trying are you trying to deliver sort of different kind of um, experiences or or observations shall we say of the different layers of Irish society to people who might not have had any experience of them?
1: I'm trying to understand the society I come from for myself Mm -hmm and I, a I'm interested in people on the margins and so I felt that I grew up on the margins uh in, in that the world I grew up in was sort of you know wasn't written about but that's it it was a new world and so you, you couldn't expect Joyce or uh now uh, Bean could have written about it because actually he, he was actually from uh um the, the suburbs he moved out there very quickly but but sort of he preferred the world of the of, of the tenement slums of his childhood to actually sort of uh, as his terrain he didn't want to address that that's that, that that world of Crumlin, where, where his family lived. But um, I sort of felt I want to explain to understand the totality of the society I came from, and people like the Gulliver Shires were also on the edge of society. They were home rulers. They were liberal Protestants. Uh, they were looking for that. Uh, uh, Countess was a relation, but also they had relations who were like staunch Orange men, and and so I, I love the contradictions within within yeah. every Irish family, uh, and. Yes. And I love to, I mean, Hugo Hamilton is brilliant with that, with the Sailor and the Wardrobe and those novels about, uh, uh, about his Gergore father and his grandfather, who was in the British Navy. And so um, I actually felt, for me, there was, there was no difference writing about the factory workers in Finglas or writing about the Guilford oils in Moscow. Was, they were all part of the same story mm-hmm. in the same way. I suppose because my mother was from a family of 11, my father was from a family of seven and they all emigrated to England for work. I have relations, I have one or two relations in Ireland, but my relations are primarily in Wolverhampton, in Leicester, in Luton, in Coventry, uh, spread across England. Uh, And the only reason that I have a Dublin accent as against uh, a London accent or a Leicester or Wolverhampton accent is that my father was a sailor and emigrated twice a week for 44 years. And so when I also wrote about um, soccer, uh, I have all about the Irish emigrant experience through soccer in two plays in high Germany and the parking glass and when I was in um, uh, Germany in 1988 watching that Irish soccer team and half my born in England and everything else, for me they weren't mercenaries or they weren't, for me they were the sons of my aunts and my uncles and they were as much part of the Irish experience of somebody growing up in Fingness or growing up in Donnybrook or growing up in Mayo. And so the Irish experience for me has always been as much about the Irish experience of Japan as the Irish experience of um, Kildare. It is, one is cognizant that uh, we're a nation, particularly in my parents' generation and not so much my generation, but the generation came after had to emigrate and and, and had to become part of. So there's always, if you tell the Irish story, there is no part of the world that you cannot go to and and that cannot be part of the Irish story because they're all interlinked and and uh, all full of contradictions. And writers love contradictions. It's from contradictions that sort of stories come.
0: I was just going to ask you there how you spent the last six months uh, in, in lockdown. Was it, were there any books that you read that were, you know, a consolation to you, shall we say, if you were at home? Were you at home on your own or... Uh, my, my son,
1: uh, I have two sons, one in London that I haven't seen since Christmas, oh. that I'm hoping to see uh, at Christmas this time, and uh, and one son living with me. And we, 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 um, I, I, I actually went back to writing poems for the first time. I found in those long winter evenings, I began, and oh, no, those long, summer evenings, I beg pardon, uh, I began to walk the streets again, like when I was 16 as a child, and poems came to me, and, and I found that was great benediction finishing these short stories gave me a focus uh, for secrets never told and um, i mean the thing secrets never told probably won't do very well because it's coming out in this massive explosion of books uh, but i've written 14 novels uh, and i had plays and everything else i felt really sorry for writers who were for first-time writers there was a writer called there is a writer called marion lee who wrote a book called a *Quiet Tide* about a botanist uh, Ellen Hutchins in the um, start of the 19th century in uh, Bantry who was uh, her, her family made her live there she was trapped by um, her family trapped by society and yet she was a firstly independent woman uh, and uh, she's now a famous botanist and um, this Marion Lee must have spent like five years writing this beautiful book. And like the same way when you read David Park for the first time, you said, this is a true writer. And it must be so hard for those writers who've spent years walking towards a debut. Uh, and then that debut goes into suddenly within... Um, um, two weeks of that book being published, there wasn't a bookshop open in Dublin. You know everything books upstairs were sort of operating behind closed doors and everything else. So it, 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 it's I've been lucky in that um, uh, I've actually had my time. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully I have a bit of time to go but I felt uh, I, I so I spent the time writing but also I felt time feeling really sorry for writers who were just about to publish their, 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 their first book and had spent so long imagining what, the, I mean I actually, I signed uh, you know, book launches were always great fun, the first Raven book launch happened in the Protestant church in Fingness and it was really funny because the litterati from Dublin came out and they were terrified to come to Fingness so they all drank fire water and they all were fighting and, and rowing in the church while the locals were looking at them aghast. And I thought it was hard to bring art to the people but I realised it was really hard to protect the people from the artists and, and the occasion. and book launches were great fun and everybody got together and uh, l- last week um, the publishers in New Orleans brought over 50 copies of uh, Secrets, never told that people had requested. And I did my book launch on the bonnet of my 15-year-old clapped Skoda, uh, you know, signing books on the car. And that was the book launch because there'll never be a gathering of people. So I, I feel sorry for writers who are missing for, for, for the first time all of these things that they imagined of how a book would be. But when a book is published is never like you imagined. I, Winston Churchill said many wise things and one thing he said was that no battle plan ever survived the war charge and so and no book in the same way is ever quite the same way. So I, 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 I'm, I've been lucky that I've had a lot of decades of um, success and failure but to, to experience uh, all those things and I'm feel sorry for writers who haven't. <laughs>
0: Dermot, thank you very much for talking to us tonight and I do hope that you'll come and see us if you do manage to get over to London I hope you will and uh, we'll certainly try and put together some sort of a launch for you for Secrets Never Told which is a great book and I think a lot of people will, will really enjoy it and thank and you very much for talking to for
1: us your, The pleasure of your company and your conversation it would be a pleasure to be in Hammersmith at my age it would be a pleasure to be anywhere and thank you also to the the uh, London to the Irish Culture Centre for putting together such a and an important programme of events and keeping uh, writers in contact with their readers uh, and their audience at this time.
0: So it's been a pleasure to be involved in this. Thank you. Thank you, Dermot.